Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, your host. Glad you could join me. Hope your springtime is going well. Big holiday. Semi-official start of summer coming up. A little bit of everything. Trying to keep out of trouble here. But uh, maybe get into trouble as well. We'll be covering... uh, Well, we're taking a deeper dive into the problems with bobwhite quail. We have the new director of the National Bobwhite Conservation Initiative coming up to spend some time with us, figure out what his vision is for that organization, how they fit into everything else, and uh, how at some point, we hope, bobwhite populations will rise instead of plummet. We'll also uh, share some spots I've learned are pretty good for running a dog on the road not literally places that are a little safer than those roadside rests and our this land is your land segment will cover hunting in the people's republic of california yeah you might be surprised how's your week going what you been up to here it's all about learning to shoot better and uh, training dogs had a great week so far. A couple things. I've told you about all the shooting practice I'm doing, relearning the instinctive style. Turns out a lot of folks are doing it. They may not call it that, but that's what it is. Enjoying the heck out of it. Did something to experiment. You know, back in the day when I was learning all this, it was very, very obvious to me that the only way to learn it, according to my instructor, was side by side with a straight stock and pretty much a flat um, butt, you know, not, not much curve to it, not, not much uh, cant, if you will. Well, I started talking to other people about it, including Chris Batha, who you've heard talk about similar subjects recently, and uh, decided I better try some of the other guns in the safe just in case. So I um, at least took out a pistol grip side-by-side, the practice range uh, last weekend and and did pretty good so you know i'm getting over all those things i think in large part the tool is only one part of the equation the rest of it is um, hand-eye coordination careful practice gun mounts paramount pardon the pun seems to be working so far also got to uh, run into an old friend over there at the Sporting Clays course and, and walked much of the course with them. I'm not ready to shoot most of those targets yet. I'm still trying to ensure that pra- perfect practice makes perfect, but a lot of fun. David, thank you. Good to meet you, Jim, as well. Also helped a buddy with his short hair who is uh, aiming for an AVDA utility test, um, making some great progress there. Good dog, Bernie. And uh, so are you. You're working on a few different things. Uh, I thought it would be a good time to, you know, ask on the Facebook page, get everybody primed a little bit. It's a long time, eh, probably, you know, 18 or 19, 20 weeks to the earliest hunting season. So, On Facebook, I asked the question, if you could help out a fellow hunter with one tip, one suggestion, some advice, or a tactic for hunting season, what would you tell them? Got some great answers here. Philip Urban says, when you're hunting wild pheasants, split your group and approach the field from opposite directions. I love that idea. It's kind of a variation on the block and drive thing. 
Dave DeSmither says, follow your nose. Yeah. George Cummins, honor all points. Boy, I wish I could do that more often, George, but I'm working on it. Joel Witt, always trust the dog. There's a lot of philosophy in these answers. Kurt Grossman says, uh, always make sure that there is blue sky between the dog and the shot. Absolutely true. Lance Larson, always trust the dog. If he says uh, there is a bird there, it's there. I like this from Bob Ruppel. He says, when hunting pheasants in standing corn, start off slowly. As you proceed, pick up the pace. As you near the end, move very fast to force the birds to flush rather than run back through the line of hunters. And Travis Powers says, shut your mouth and follow the dog. Amen to that, Travis, and everybody else. Great comments. Thank you all for your help and for helping out a fellow hunter. Um, that's good advice. You know, you just take some of that to heart, and you'll, you'll, you'll probably have a more productive hunt. All right. The Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, hafted at the, crafted <laughs> at the highest caliber. Oh, some great stuff over there. Always new things on the docket. Coming down the pipeline, get on the mailing list so you have first shot at that new gear. Always free shipping on everything from the littlest stuff to the biggest stuff. Sageandbreaker.com. And if you're looking for gear uh, that's lightly used, whether you want to sell it or buy it, head to UplandNationDeals.com. Selling lots of electronic collars, GPS collars, bird launchers, uh, bird hunting vests are all very popular at UplandNationDeals.com. If you got things sitting around gathering dust that you might want to turn into cash money, maybe so you can buy some ammo if you find it, check it all out at UplandNationDeals.com. Well, I promised you a deep dive into the quail situation, particularly the Bob White quail situation. A group I followed for decades now that I think about it, the National Bob White Conservation Initiative, has a new director, John Morgan. Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. Really enjoy the opportunity to, to share our message with your audience. Appreciate it. You, um, you're, how new are you over there? I, I got the, I got a news release or something a few weeks back, but uh, you know, this is not something that happens overnight. Uh, how long you actually been part of the organization? Yes, I've got a long history with the organization, but not a long history in the role as director. I started as director October 1st, um, of last year, of course. So, uh, just been what a little more than six seven months now in the job but i have been a part of the partnership for over 17 years working in a prior role with kentucky department of fish and wildlife resources so i've been familiar with the group for a long long time well we're going to get back to the group and wh what you do and everything else in just a moment but we got to get some formalities out of the way so get ready for some uh some quick answers to some hard questions oh okay let her rip upland or waterfowl upland all the way side by side or over and under both i just bought a side by side and uh i have to have to be determined which i like better 20 gauge or 12 20 all day long don't need the beating 
I know the answer to this one. Flusher or pointer? Pointer. Yes. And a particularly good-looking one, right? Well, I don't know if I go that far. I've got an ugly dog, German wire-haired pointer. So uh, that, that is uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. They say, right? I'm on my fifth wire hair. We are in oh, good. Right. We are in well, good company. <laughs> well, uh, you know, if I, 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 and you can speak frankly here, uh, but if you had the chance uh, and you were going to be hunting anything you could with your new side by side. Besides Bob White's, what might it be? Yeah, that's a really good question as well. I actually am originally from northern Pennsylvania, so my exposure to upland bird hunting was the infamous rough grouse, the state bird of Pennsylvania. So I love chasing rough grouse. I'm not sure my new side-by-side is best suited. It's a little a little too long for the thick coverts that uh, our rough grouse brethren live in, but I love hunting rough grouse. And I'll never forget the first advice I got from, uh, from the, uh, at the time, the, the president of the rough grouse society, when we hunted together, he said, the first thing you got to do when the dog goes on point is find a place where you can swing your gun without hitting a tree trunk. <laughs> That's very good advice. I've yeah. got several trees in half over my career. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got more trees mounted on my wall than I do anything else. Yes. Uh, I consider it, one of the most difficult forms of link shooting you'll ever do is trying to hit a rough grouse. So. You know, and it, it's for all those reasons, but it's also for some others. And I've dreamt of this. And if you're a hardcore grouse hunter, tell me, I think we need to set up a skeet field and then plant a bunch of telephone poles around every station. <laughs> there you go. They've got to be a lot thicker than telephone poles, though. They've got to have really high stem density. So maybe like a slalom course, but really high density, <laughs> you know, kind of those, whatever those floppy things that they ski in between. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and if they not, if they can be knocked over and come back, all the better, because we're going to knock them over a lot. Yeah, whip you in the face. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it's, it's definitely tough hunting for sure. Well, you know, besides the challenge of all of that, whether it's Bob White's or Ruffy's or anything in between, which, by the way, now that I think about it, Pennsylvania is the one of the only other states where you can have the T-shirt that says, Pennsylvania, where we eat our state bird. <laughs> yes, I've never heard that, but I like it. I might have to use it. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I have not copyrighted that. Somebody in South Dakota did a long time ago, but... Uh, um, what is it about this hunting thing that, that number one, it's great to hear of an academic uh, in our world with a, with a passion for hunting, but what is it that trips your trigger? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's really started well back in my youth with my, my dad and brother. I mean, it's always been a family affair for me and whether it was with my, again, dad or brother or friends of field, the camaraderie of it is just as important as the experience of dog and bird and, and the chase, the challenge. Uh, I think that's one of the most compelling parts in my mind of modern day upland bird hunting is, is the challenge of it all. You have to put in the work. You have to know the habitat. Uh, you get the opportunity for camaraderie and storytelling that's multi-generational. It's kind of like what was lost with deer camps, but mm -hmm. it's not lost in bird hunting. It's still thriving in the bird hunting community because it's a team or a group activity in my mind very social very interactive uh, including the dog uh, it just makes a fantastic pastime that's active 
you know, as opposed to, you know, I hunt all kinds of things and I get really bored sitting in a deer stand. I don't get bored when I'm out bird hunting. I've, I've always put it this way. Like you, I, I agree. It's, it's the people to people stuff in, in large part, but of course we know deep down, it's all about watching those really ugly dogs work. But, but the whole idea of sitting around and not doing anything and then trying to talk about something doesn't work with guys. You know, that's why we fix cars and we watch football because if we're doing something else, then the real important conversations can also take place. And, uh, I'm going to, I've been working on this for a while. We've done it informally a few times. There's, you know, four or five of us in our little training slash hunting group that get together periodically. We're going to start building a campfire in the backyard once a month and just hang around off season. Yeah. Off Keep season. In the off season, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Keep the spirit alive. I like that. Yeah, so uh, without making it too formal, uh, at least we're going to get together and, and burn something uh, in the backyard. So uh, let's get back to the NBCI because um, there there is a, an alphabet full of organizations out there helping upland birds. And even in the quail world, there's, you know, those guys in Florida, there's those guys in Texas, then there's those guys in Minnesota and, and everybody. Oh, and then there's, I think they're in Alabama. Um, there's a lot of folks, you know, in the, in the Bob White world. Now, if anybody listening wants to learn more about the National Bob White Conservation Initiative, you go to bringbackbobwhites.org. But with that in mind, John, tell us a little bit, give us the, you know, the overview of your organization, where it fits in that whole matrix. Yes, we are. You did a good job of kind of summarizing the complexity of the Bob White world. And, and that is what really, to me, makes the MBCI or the National Bob White Conservation Initiative so special. It's the one kind of unifying body that brings everyone together. Uh, there's plenty of factions out there in the quail community. Um, you know, from the deep south quail plantations to the western rangelands to the struggling mid-Atlantic states just trying to have a few birds. You know, there's there's things that divide us, but the one thing the MBCI brings together is the common theme and purpose of focusing on habitat conservation. It's what it's all about. It's what we can all agree on, and it's something that's kept us together now for 27 years uh, working on this daunting, daunting challenge of changing how people use and view the land, which is certainly one of the mantras that I love to use when you talk about the challenge of Bob White. It's all about changing land use and how people perceive the land. And extremely difficult task. And we need that army of partners uh, that includes, you know, whether it's our hunting partners, whether it's the university partners, we're made up of 25 state fish and wildlife agencies. So we're one of the largest voluntary conservation partnerships, in my mind, in U.S. history when it comes to wildlife management. Yeah, I, you know, going through my, my what's left of my brain, I can't think of any others that are, are as, as far-reaching geographically and from a, uh, I guess, from a, well, I'll call it a landscape scale. But, but all of those things, you know, if you asked anybody in all those other groups, they tell us the same thing. So what puts you guys apart from them? How, what, how do you function within that whole uh, uh, milieu? Yes, yeah. Well, we're, we've always been a partnership that's largely been centered on the state fish and wildlife agencies. Back in 
1996, this group was formed at the directive of the State Wildlife Agency's executive directors through the Southeastern Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. So there's regional associations of agencies, wildlife agencies across the country. The Southeastern region, comprised of 13 states at the time, said we need to start collaborating to solve this Bob White crisis. Uh, and that brought the group together. Uh, and of course, they invited like-minded people and partners. And over time, this partnership has continued to grow through the spirit of that state wildlife agency leadership to include just an enormous diversity of partners that goes beyond quail and game birds to non-game birds, again, universities, federal agencies. Uh, we have a very lengthy list of conservation partners, and I'm, I'm happy to report we just signed on with the Monarch Joint Venture as a new conservation partner because the needs of Bob White and Monarch butterflies almost seamlessly overlap in many ways. So um, we're, we're expanding our vision and our reach uh, because our task is so difficult. But you know, we're leaded again. I guess I didn't answer your question very well, Scott. It's the state agencies. We have a steering committee. Um, that leads us, uh, that's comprised largely of elected state wildlife agency uh, individuals mainly, but we also have non-government organization representation on our steering committee. And we are also governed by a management board, which is comprised of the executive directors of those agencies and those nonprofit partners as well. So we have two tiers of leadership that keeps us complex partnership, you know, pointed in the right direction. That's a lot of layers, but ultimately boots on the ground are, are what make changes in our world. And uh, we know about the stuff, it, and I mean that in the, the broadest sense of the term, because um, there's a lot of academics. You're one in your organization, and you write a lot of papers, and those papers all have a goal. But that's not all you do. If you were going to pretend we're we're reading a paper of yours and you're describing the NBCI, what would the, what would the abstract, the preface uh, cover in, you know, a hundred words or less? Oh boy. Tough question. Um, this is such a complex organization that we operate, but we're really aimed at, in my mind, changing uh, how people use and view the land again, largely on private lands through, collaboration among a diverse group of partners aimed at delivering management practices on the land through a host of those those organizations. Um, so, I mean, we are all about boots on the ground. Uh, we do a lot of academic work, mm -hmm. but it is about uh, working the ground. I mean, Bob White, our disturbance generated species, we need land management actions on a two to three year rotation in perpetuity. So we're about getting that habitat work done through a whole host of different ways and using the synergy of partnerships to get it done at scales that matter. Yeah, and I think you just hit on exactly what I was wondering, and that is uh, with, with a, uh, as broad a reach as you have geographically, you can actually do things on a scale that will have effect. Am I, am, am I on the right track there? Yes, that's one of the biggest problems we face in, in modern America now that we've watched Bob White habitat erode now over a period of 50 and, and some might even argue 100 years now. And it's going to take a lot of time to recover that. But it used to be we could, in many landscapes, uh, say if you build it, they will come. 
And that is no longer as true as it used to be because the populations are getting more and more diffuse across the land. You could put the perfect little uh, ideal farm of habitat, even a couple hundred acre farm, for example, and there's no guarantee in some states that Bob White will show up anymore. So the challenge has gotten much more difficult that we have to build these larger landscapes of habitat um, to bring birds back in a meaningful way, a noticeable way, and particularly a huntable way. You know, you hear about that when you talk about managing Yellowstone grizzlies on a, you know, a, a, a macro scale. You never hear about that with these little birds that run around on the ground. The same thing holds true. They need that, um, what am I going to call it, whether it's corridors or just larger landscapes. Is that the biggest challenge you face these days in bringing birds back? Oh, absolutely. It's all about scale of effect. Um, how connected is connected is one of those sciencey questions that yeah. we're always trying to answer. And we continue yeah. to develop science to try to define that so we can better implement practices to get the biggest bang for our buck, so to speak. So it is all about, we're not talking about hundreds of acres anymore. We're talking about thousands of acres. Uh, and our scalable strategy for restoration now has a focus area focus area level, which tends to be less than 10,000 acres. And then we're talking about a landscape scale, which is tens of thousands of acres. And then we're talking about a regional scale, which is hundreds of thousands or more of acres to even millions of acres. Wow. So we're taking this really scalable approach and we're trying to quote unquote, start small with <laughs> thousands of acres. If that's small, but in the grand scheme of things, that's what it takes for us to get birds back in a meaningful way. And we've got to prove that we can do it at thousands of acres of scale first before we jump into 10,000s and 100,000s and millions of acres because we've got to get that formula right and prove that we can do it. There's a lot of people out there that doubt that well can be recovered at levels that they were familiar with in the past. And we may not get to 1960, but to think we can get back to, say, 1980s densities, I think is very tangible. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden, the host. That's John Morgan. He's the director at the National Bob White Conservation Initiative. Learn more about them at bringbackbobwhites.org. John, you've hit on something that's that's kind of been a it, it stuck in my craw for a long pardon the pun for a long time, um, and that is this idea of working so closely with private landowners i mean here we have, you're a perfect example you you're an organization of, of state wildlife agencies uh, in large part and yet here we are working with uh, guys who uh, who who never let me come onto their land to hunt what's the rationale there yes hunting access of course is a really big issue and Unfortunately, if you look at the history of this country, we're really founded on private property rights and private ownership. It's it's a cornerstone of capitalism in the United States of America, and and we're you know living with the, the ramifications, if you will, of that model. Uh, not to say that there's anything wrong with it. It's just posed some conservation challenges uh, when land ownerships have the right to do what they will with their own land, and do they allow on it? So. Uh, it is hard to communicate with some sportsmen and women out there that we have to invest so much effort on private lands. But if you look at the composition of ownership across our 25-state partnership, 
the vast majority of the habitats out there are on private lands. And when I say the vast majority, we're talking anywhere from 85 to as high as 95% of our state partners. The ground's owned by private landowners. We can't just manage public lands and have Bob White for people to pursue. It's just not going to happen. So we simply have to focus on working with our private landowners. I get it, and I understand completely. Um, j but just to put a finer point on it, let me make sure I understand it in my own head. So, so because so much of the land is privately owned, if we want to see any success, we got to deal with a lot of private land that hopefully will will um, will uh, create benefits on the public land that's also within that ecosystem. Am I on the right track? Yeah, it works both ways. Yeah. And to say that we don't focus efforts on public lands is false. But yeah. To read our long-term restoration and recovery vision, which is landscape-scale recovery of Bob White, um, we simply don't have a choice. We yeah. have to put a heavy degree of effort there. But believe me, we're doing plenty of work on public lands, uh, so at least there are some opportunities out there for our sportsmen and women to have a place to go. Yeah. Uh, the problem is when we do that, most of those folks, we, we advertise where we do that work, obviously. We, we use our public areas as a demonstration for private lands in some ways. And obviously, to keep some of our most ardent supporters engaged in supporting conservation through the benefit of being an active participant as, as a passionate hunter. So we get a lot of traffic on those areas, and sometimes they're not very large in size, so you have the, the complexities of pressure, hunting pressure, that we also have to manage, which makes it even more difficult. Yeah, it's, uh, we want positive hunting experiences. Yeah, if you build it, gosh dang it, they're going to come, aren't they? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yes, they are. And heck, some of my work in Kentucky, we had, I, I think we had 13 states come to one of our public areas that we had managed with great success. Yeah. Um, that just traveled to a public area in central Kentucky, you know, and we're not necessarily a mecca of Bob White, but but we attracted a lot of people through good conservation work. You know, if, if only we could figure out a way to do catch and release hunting too, then, then we could do a little bit more of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might work just a bit better. If we had that luxury. <laughs> uh, we're just getting warmed up around here. Um, I'm going to give you a moment or two to collect your breath and your thoughts. John Morgan with the national Bob White conservation initiative. I'm going to talk on if my voice will hold out. Uh, we've got a lot more to cover from more on the Bob White situation and what they're doing to where to run a dog on the road and hunting in the people's republic of california i'll give you a tip or two i'm a native and not living there anymore but stick around for all of that and john i'll be back with you in just a moment yeah, so um, the Upland Nation podcast is brought to you in part by my good friend, Dr. Tim Hunt, and his performance dog food. You can learn more about him at drtims.com. That's Dr. Tim's. We've been working a lot on some, uh, oh, hopefully, some useful informational videos. And, uh, and one of the ones that really changed my thinking about dog food is, is this whole idea of um, where fat fits in the whole milieu of dog food. Not only the fat, but the quality and the origins of it. Now, I can't give you a lecture here. Watch for the video. Actually, it's up at my website, uh, findbirdhuntingspots.com. Watch that thing and learn what you can about 
how important it is to have high quality and a variety of fats in your dog's food. Of course, all of that is disclosed fully on Dr. Tim's website. You can find out where those ingredients came from and why they're in each of his formulations. Flick he uses the momentum formula. It's a little bit higher protein, a little bit higher fat, but that guy's putting in dozens of miles a day in the field. You can get 30% off your first order. Just use the code Upland Nation and tell Dr. Tim I sent you. Speaking of flick running, we do a lot of it in a lot of states. So I learn a lot about traveling with dogs in the handle it segment this week let's talk about some of the other places you can road your dog not literally but figuratively when you're traveling sometimes you need to sometimes you want to maybe it's just a break maybe your dog needs to pee whatever it is you are welcome at a lot of places that may not be on your radar screen yet let me just throw a few of these out that are kind of my picks first off uh they're open second off they're secure in one way or another quite often they're fenced at least on a few sides and in many cases we've already paid the taxes that pay for those places my favorite little league fields other sports fields at parks or places like that some churches some public schools if you're desperate mall parking lots early in the morning especially around the back in the loading dock area i've even exercised my dogs in mini storage facilities yeah it's a long run out and back but it works for me and it is secure sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than permission be circumspect about what you use and how you use it if you are confronted and you have a pocket full of other people's litter that you've picked up on the place, it probably softens the bureaucrat who's calling you out for it. Whatever it is, be safe, be consistent, be complimentary, and also pick up after your own dog. Just a few things I've learned over the years, traveling with five German wire-haired pointers, most of them pretty darn good boys. All right, John Morgan with the National Bob White Conservation Initiative. Are you still there with me? Yes, sir. I'm here. Well, welcome back to everybody. And um, really intrigued with some of this stuff because, you know, at one point I was sort of an academic, um, not enough to, not in your league, certainly, and not in your subject matter. But I'm intrigued with the idea of a whole bunch of folks using science, literally, um, to, to help hunters in many ways and, and obviously other people as well. So the question is, uh, what have you done for us lately? Uh, why don't you, uh, summarize some of your activities? Yes, we are working on, uh, heck I'm working on four grants this week, uh, trying to help these state wildlife agencies put more habitat on the ground, which is certainly our number one objective the MBCI partnership. We're getting much more aggressive in seeking grant funds, whether they be federal funds or uh, nonprofit funds or foundation funds that overlap with our habitat vision. So we're, we're doing a lot of work on that. We're doing it in a very coordinated way. Um, and it's so we can maximize learning while we're doing 
we don't what we don't want to do is to do a bunch of abstract research that takes decades to decipher and decide what to do we are trying to do it in a, you know what we can talk what you've probably heard before adaptive resource management or an adaptive uh, approach that allows us again to learn while doing so and we're doing that right now with 27 different focus areas and 20 different states. And so what you do by all working together, which again is the spirit of the MBCI, uh, we can accelerate learning. We can do it faster and we can do it cheaper. So that's really at the core of what we are working on from the science side. Let's work together. Uh, let's measure everything the same way. So when we do these high level data analyses and creating predictive models, uh, bird responses and you know what practices are working and what are not and it's not necessarily about the practices themselves it's more about as we talked about before the spatial arrangement how connected are they what's the landscape context around these areas that we're working and how does that change bird numbers and population responses let's so, just go ahead no, that's okay. I, I was just about to wrap up. So good time to All right, take me to school because I'm out here in the West. Pardon me. I'm out here in the West, and I know I know my valley and my gamble squail uh, country pretty darn well. But out there in in Bob White country, um, I'm I'm a I'm a babe in the woods, literally. Describe ideal Bob White habitat for us. Okay, yeah, that's a really good place to start. And you are a little bit at a disadvantage, Scott, being from the West, because you're blessed with such a, an, a broad or vast array of public hunting opportunities. Most of the Bob Wright range is not characterized by that. So um, that's what makes this a lot more difficult than a lot of the game birds in the West. Um, but uh, Bob White habitat is it's very dynamic. Uh, it's best when it's well interspersed. We, of course, need uh, bunch grasses, which tend to be what we talk about, our native warm season grasses, but there's also some cool season grasses that provide that. Uh, we don't need a ton of grass, though. What we also need is a bunch of wildflowers, and those wildflowers provide not only seeds, but insects for quail. Uh, <clears throat> so we'd want to see 60-70% of a landscape uh, more in open habitat with 20 to 30 percent of that landscape interspersed with woody cover. And when we talk about woody cover, we're talking about shorter stature, high density woody cover, um, say less than 12 feet tall with high stem density near ground level. So a raptor can't fly through it is, you know, if you can get that mind's eye of uh, that thickness that you're looking for, you start thinking about blackberry patches and uh, heavy plum thickets uh, come to mind. So we're in a generally a grassland context. Some of those grassland contexts can include trees. You start thinking about southern sure. pine, for example. Yeah. Now those are stocked very lightly, so you have all that vegetation on the at ground level for Bob White. When you think about quail, think about the first 12 inches uh, of their world. That's what they're really. I mean, these are a, a bird that does most of its time walking around. They don't fly around. They walk around most of the time. So everything in their world is usually that kind of foot and under. And, you know, they need to, to navigate through these, again, bunch grasses. We have problems in the east with sod-forming grasses, uh, which impedes movement, doesn't create a diverse uh, wildflower community, because quail really 
benefit from bare ground. That's another major factor of quail habitat that a lot of people don't recognize. And in many ways, even veteran quail hunters don't recognize the importance of bare ground. It's a really important facet of quail habitat, which is a measure of disturbance, whether that's, you know, agriculture or burning or herbicide use or disking, whatever it may be that generates, restarts that plant community, quail thrive in that, that bare ground system. There were two things that I would highlight in quail habitat. I'd say bare ground and that shrubby protective escape cover are two major facets that we always try to encourage people to think about when we're talking about quail habitat. Yeah, and you know that goes uh, goes for western quail to a great degree as well. So in that regard, they're you know very similar in some of their habits. Um, how how important is water to a bob white? Well, most it's very important in the Midwest when you start thinking about Texas, Kansas, Oklahoma. But as you move east, that becomes much much less important. Uh, it's you know, very well, you do see again in those more arid regions of the range where you do see them using maybe some guzzlers or going to cattle, um, cattle areas where there's water so they can drink water. Most water for Bob White across most of their range they can get through either dew or uh, through the seeds or bugs that they're eating. Yeah, so they can get a lot of it just through normal ingestion of other materials. As you get to the more arid west at the farther expanses of their western range water becomes a more limiting factor and has a huge impact uh, on population numbers and reproductive potential. Uh, when there's a drought, they're in big trouble. When they get appropriately timed spring rains, all of a sudden you see those booms that quail are known for where there's widespread habitat. So that begs a question. Um, why don't we just raise a whole bunch of them and put them out and hopefully they'll reproduce and, you know, in an exponential way, we'll have way more quail on the ground in two or three years than we would if we just crossed our fingers and hoped for the right weather on the right time of the year. Yes, believe me, that has been tried yeah. many, many, many times. Uh, in my prior work in Kentucky Fish and Wildlife, we released over three and a half million quail from 1950 through the late 80s. So uh, believe me, there was plenty of efforts to do exactly what you just articulated. Uh, the problem is, is if a wild quail can't live there, why would someone think one that was raised in a pen could? I, I think that's the first logical question that is worth throwing out there. And the other issue through years of following these birds, we found, heck, I think the average pen-reared quail lasts nine days after release. Uh, they just don't survive well. Well, um, and and so, well this may be rhetorical, but it, it, it does... It does, it's worth asking. Sure. Um, Ringneck pheasants, Hungarian partridge, chuckers were all dumped somewhere and thrived at one point or another. They were planted birds at one point and they did fine. Um, what is the difference between a planted quail and a planted chucker in 1940 in central Nevada? Yeah, those are some great questions and all as I can assume. And I, I don't, we don't have the answers for all those things. I mean, we continually get challenged on particularly pheasants and why they were successful in the Dakotas and yeah. not successful as you get subglaciation. And there's all kinds of speculation on uh, whether it's climatic conditions. Uh, you know, a lot of those birds weren't pen reared. I guess I would start with that. We've mm -hmm. had good luck with wild translocations. And I, okay. And, 
And that is one potential separator, and we're getting more involved in wild translocations with Bob White. The same thing was tried with wild turkeys is another perfect example of a huge restoration success story with the native species, all done with wild translocations. Uh-huh. Um, so to me, that's one of the, the more important facets of it. Um, and we still have to be really thoughtful about when you do a wild translocation, particularly when you start thinking about microclimates, uh, moisture gradients. So my assumptions were those birds, like chuckers, for example. I mean, they're they're a bird of dry, rocky environments, and they were put into an environment, you know, the exact same environment in many ways, very, very similar. Um, when you put pheasants in a context that looks like the Dakotas, they seem to do fine if you put them in a more agrarian, uh, dynamic landscape of farms, fields, and woods. They don't seem to do as well. Uh, so there's some nuances there. I think the habitat, the closer it is to exactly what their, you know, original population came from, the higher the chance of success. Using wild translocations, the higher chance of success. And there's some wild cards in there. We still don't know the answers to. I'll uh, never, yeah. I'll never forget they uh, they tried to introduce Mongolian pheasants to some of the more heavily wooded parts of Oregon many decades ago, and it was a complete and total flop. Somebody missed one of the key items on the checklist, I think. I don't know what it was, but <laughs> yes. the, well, a lot of it's a numbers game too. You've oh, got, sure, yeah. If you're going to die at high rates, you've got to put out a high, high, high volume. Believe me, they tried it with Penrith Bob Lake, but. Yeah. Um, you know, whether with some of these other species that failed, uh, you know, you have to get, they're going to die at high rates. You got to keep dumping birds. I mean, you got to think also historically some of the science there wasn't as, as what it is now. Yeah. But more of it, as we learn, um, it's, it's a numbers game. You've got to keep dumping out a high number of birds. Some of them wander off and die. You can't even keep them in the habitat where they've been released. It's a complex game when you start moving something from its home and try to put it into a new area to create a home. It's not like sea monkeys just add water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I love the idea that uh, the wild translocating wild birds may, may be a glimmer of hope in that world. And speaking of that sort of thing, uh, uh, you know, uh, what is it? We focus so much on the negative, uh, not just here. I try not to do that, but, uh, but you know, give us some, give us some of your, give us some good news, John. Yeah, I think I can give you some, and it, it may not necessarily be specific just to Bob White, but mm-hmm. I think it's it's really because it's a societal problem that we're dealing with, and I think think we are seeing. I use the term renaissance of people having uh, an interest, a passion for conservation. Um, You know, grasslands are becoming a really, really important landscape that people are starting to talk about. We hear a lot more of people talking about agricultural sustainability, uh, which creates tremendous opportunities to create those edges that Bob White need, that agrarian landscape. Um, when we start talking about sustainability, we also start talking about things like water quality, soil health, air quality, all of these hot button issues that really resonate with a broader base of society here in the United States and beyond. So I think we're really seeing a societal transition and a recognition that we've got to take better care of our natural resources. 
And Bob White can absolutely be a major, major benefactor of that. Are there good guys and bad guys that we should know about? Uh, I hate to characterize anybody as a bad guy. Um, certainly, we've got some work to do with with really our agricultural partners out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that mom and pop mo- uh, farmer mantra that we all kind of lived uh, growing up. You had that vision of grandpa with a pitchfork and grandma standing beside him. You know, that today is corporate America holding that pitchfork. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. So it's it's really we're we're repeating some mistakes. I think of eras gone by. We're really starting to uh, overutilize and exploit uh, our soil uh, and the land in a way by you know farming woodline to woodline. You know, spraying over ditches. Uh, everything is perfectly clean with herbicides and pesticides. Uh, not saying we don't need some of those products, but we need to use them as wisely and conservatively as we possibly can. Uh, so they're not necessarily bad guys. They're they're just not on our team yet, so to speak. Sure, I think there's a yeah. chance to get them on our team. Uh, believe me, if if we didn't have modern agriculture, every acre would be in beans and corn to feed the mass of humanity that is humans on this planet today. So, you know, the more efficient they are at it, the less ground they need, the more opportunities for wildlife. But Unfortunately, the wildlife that we're focusing on really benefits from the landscape that they are using the most. And we only need, in my mind, somewhere between 5 and 10% of the land. If we can put back in conditions that favor Bob White, we can have meaningful numbers of Bob White back in the landscape. So we're not asking for an enormous amount of ground. We just need to live on the edges a little bit and take advantage of those you guys um, are doing a lot of things that we'll never hear about, but one that I heard about and read just a little bit about might be of interest to listeners. Um, you've got uh, little tiny telemetry devices on little tiny birds in Oklahoma. What are you mm-hmm. learning? What are you learning from that technology? Well, historically, we had those little tiny transmitters that were um, VHFs uh, that used. They, they had beeps from on a frequency, and now these small ones that we're using today have uh, GPS technology that are collecting their own data. We used to be out there with antennas and following these quail around to get those locations. Now this new technology allows that data to be collected, you know, almost continuously. So, you know, all you know, we would only track a quail, for example, maybe three days a week or in one time a day. Yeah. Now we're getting data throughout the day. We're understanding everything about their daily movements, what times of day they're using different types of covers. We're advancing our ability now with technology to be able to really look at chick survival, which is a really big, important facet of, uh, of quail management. It's the most important thing we need. If you're a Bob Way is successful reproduction. It's hard enough to get your nest off. And then, you know, at best, we're seeing 25% on average of poults survive. Mm-hmm. Or, excuse me, chicks. It's talking turkey language there for a second. <laughs> um, so our chick survival tends to be very low. How can we learn about how to expand and improve brood rearing habitat to improve that survival rate of those chicks? Another really important facet. And how that interacts with land use and all those facets that come with getting much more information uh, 
than we ever had before. So I think the sky's the limit for learning with this new technology. Well, uh, tell me something I don't know about all of that. You know, a day in the life of a bo- uh, an adult Bob White during hunting season. Help us out here a little bit, John. <laughs> well, I tell you, they're ex- they're exceptionally evasive, which, and I don't know if enough sportsmen give them credit for it. We've done some work, and, and some of it was done by Clay Stiston um, down in uh, Alabama over the years in the p- deep south of uh, the pine country. And, you know, the, the data point was about you find every other cubby quail that's out on the landscape. Uh, and the other point that he brought forward was you may only get one true cubby rise out of a cubby per season. Uh, and that's a generalization of the stereotype. That's not to say that it, you can't do that more than once in a season with a cubby because I'm sure somebody's had that experience. But as a rule of thumb, that really holds pretty well true. Uh, it's amazing now that we, with the telemetry work that we've done, I did a study in Kentucky where we put bird dogs 100 yards or 100 meters or so directly downwind of radio cubbies, and we were only finding them 33% of the time. When we put a pen-reared covey in the same situation, we had an eight times greater probability of those dogs finding those birds compared to wild birds. So, wow. They have an amazing elusive ability that I don't think hunters truly appreciate. So um, I think what you're telling me is um, they they know we're around and they're doing everything that we always joke about it with pheasants. The pheasants will, will move over two rows of corn so that they can't be seen and then they'll sneak in behind you so you never even know they were there. Are, is yes. that the kind of thing we're talking about? This, I, I'll call it evasive maneuvering. Yeah, no, they have all kinds of it from anything that's, you know, kind of, we have some, one that I find really curious that I'll share with you that blows my mind is, I hate to use the term, but I'm going to use it, Judas birds that they see. There's like these stragglers that are strung out behind and then they separate from the cubby and the cubby could be 50, 100 feet or yards even out in front of these straggler birds that, Maybe they're the weaker individuals and they can't keep up. I don't know what's going on there, but we've seen these small groups of birds left behind in the bigger cubby. They fracture off from the bigger cubby, and you may encounter that small group while the bigger group is way out in front and heading for the hills. So it's just crazy behaviors that that, we can't explain. You know, that doesn't surprise me as much as – I would have thought when you said it, because nesting birds, of course, we know will will play that game a little bit as well all the time. They'll yes. uh, they'll uh, the yeah you know, the one or the other the birds will pretend that they have a broken wing and they'll flop around. And every day out here, we've we've got valley quail that will uh, fly from their nesting site, but they'll only fly fifteen or twenty feet. And uh, sure. hey, yeah. all, well, all of a sudden, I can get though. those, you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, look at it this way, though, Scott. You're in a cubby of 15 birds in November. How do you decide who's going to be the one? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, that's mom or dad. You Generally, mom, you know, out there trying to protect yeah. their nest. So that's a little more, you know, that's logical. You say, I can yeah. take care of your young. But when you get in a group of 15 that, you know, could be mixed individuals, ideally they are. They're not even necessarily related. 
Uh, somebody's got to decide who's going to be those stragglers. Hard to and, draw straws with wings. Yeah, you know? I mean, how are they figuring that out? No, but that's a Gary Larson cartoon in the making. <laughs> I can tell. Uh, yes. What else, what is a one? Uh, just take Bob White's period. Uh, and and you've got this depth of knowledge, and then you steal most of your good ideas from all your colleagues. So sure. uh, out of all of that, tell us something that would fascinate us about Bob White Quail that we probably don't already know. Something that would fascinate you. Let's see. Uh, now, that's a tough question because it's hard to understand what everybody else knows. Some things yeah. that I might think aren't that uncommon, you know, heck, I've always been fascinated by, and this one maybe everybody does know, but a quail chick starts out life the size of a bumblebee. When you think about navigating the world as a bumblebee, how difficult that is, and we try to use that example a lot with landowners, um, when you start trying to, hey, put yourself in the position of a quail. Imagine you are a bumblebee. Can you navigate your vegetation. Wow. Um, so I, I think that's a really interesting one, and I, I'm not so sure that that's novel to all of the hunters out there or not, but it might be something that you typically don't think about a lot um, that is pretty unique about quail, how, how small and fragile they truly are, particularly in those first couple of weeks of life. You're starting off the size of a bumblebee. All of a sudden, obstacles become quite great. And when I was highlighting that bare ground earlier, that's why it's so important. I mean, that's zero barrier if you're a bumblebee walking on the ground. Yeah, that is truly eye-opening. It, it, it's incredible. Um, what, and name us one place, and we'll close with this again on a high note, one place where this is all starting to come together that we should watch and celebrate at some point. Is there a region, a state, someplace where we've got a, Poster boy. Yeah, we've got several states that are doing a lot of good work. Um, I, I'll have to give Missouri credit. Uh, largely, they are one of the most well-funded agencies in the country, so yeah, that helped yeah. them be really successful. But if you look at a lot of our coordinated focus area data, they are consistently uh, always leading the, the charge in producing high numbers of quail. Now, keep in mind, quail are very sensitive to environmental conditions. We can have the habitat perfect, and you can have a bad year. Uh, I mean, it's based on reproduction, and weather has a huge role to play in that. But when you look year in, year out, our friends in Missouri uh, are doing a fantastic job on whether it be public or private lands, uh, generating consistent habitat-based results. Uh, and I, I don't want to say that there's not other states replicating it. They get one-eighth percent of the sales tax. Yes. So they have a little army of professionals out there doing good work. Uh, a lot of other states just don't have anywhere near the resources of that agency. But they do deserve credit. They're putting those dollars to good use and generating some really impressive responses. And they're, they're a good case study in a way because they're kind of Midwestern. And they have some Eastern characteristics, too. So it's it's a good model to show, in many ways, what's possible um, if we have the right investment uh, of resources into the wildlife resource. Because, you know, they're demonstrating what can be done when you have adequate investments. And the people of Missouri are helping pay for it. In many states, it's just limited to 
to the hunters and fishermen that are funding these state wildlife agencies. Yeah. And the yeah. challenge is just simply too great. That's not enough investors to meet the need. Yeah, especially as the numbers drop. So uh, uh, high note, Missouri, low note, Recruit a few more hunters out there if you can, please. John Morgan yes. is the National Bob White Conservation Initiative Director. Uh, great organization, kind of uh, you know below the radar for most of us, but uh, that's one reason I thought we should talk. John, learned a lot, enjoyed our discussion. We'll do it again sometime. Thanks for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for what you and your folks do. and be happy to join you any other time in the future thanks again for the opportunity you're welcome well that was eye-opening hope you felt the same way still got a little bit more here including this land is your land i got a travel tip and a destination for you here on the upland nation podcast but first we're brought to you in part by happyjackinc.com happy jack is the brand inc.com happyjackinc.com it's flea season yeah uh bug season in general we're taking precautions maybe you are too maybe you're a little bit concerned about some of the talk some of the news out there about some of the um uh, other ways to fight fleas and ticks on your dog well the flea beacon from happy jack is non-toxic no chemicals just a way to attract all the bad guys out of your furniture, out of your carpeting, out of your dog kennel, and put them on a little sticky plate where they can't pester your dog anymore. Take a look at the flea beacon. And then on a day-to-day -day basis in the field, I'm using DD33 from Happy Jack. You've seen me use it on television. It's a spray-on, it doesn't smell funny, and it works happyjackinc.com learn all about the preventatives the remedies everything else that's out there on the market at happyjackinc.com i'm lucky enough to travel a lot whether for business on tv or for pleasure i'm always hunting <laughs> And uh, I've been driving back and forth from Southern California to uh, Nevada for decades. <clears throat> always wondering about that area. I don't live down there anymore, but I've always been intrigued and started investigating a little bit more. Relatively new place. Well, it's always been there, but now it's called the Mojave National Preserve. It's out in Southeast California. People's Republic of California it does have some hunting. Yeah, there's a few rules you got to follow, so be careful about that. But half the Star Trek episodes where they've beamed down to a desert planet, that's the country. Your home base would be Barstow, the town of Barstow. From there, you're going to explore Fred Gamble's quail and a few chuckers here and there. If you're in Southern California and you're looking for a little bit of hunting adventure, the Mojave National Preserve is worth a look. The gambles hang out in the arroyos, the dry riverbeds in the morning. They'll shade up after it gets warm. And chuckers, like chuckers everywhere, find cheatgrass and walk uphill. Speaking of simple, it's time for me to say goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. 
Thank you, John Morgan from the National Bob White Conservation Initiative for enlightening us on your organization. We're brought to you in part by FindBirdHuntingSpots.com, new material every week to help you find places to hunt. Got some new stuff on there this week. Take a look. Appreciate that. Appreciate your rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends. It's the most important way to spread the word about the Upland Nation podcast. I'll leave you with this quote from, well, nobody knows who it came from, but it's spot on, that's for sure. A dog is one of the few things in life that is exactly what it seems. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. See you in the field.